Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Excuse me, may I have some more? We are the Foodcast with an Insatiable Appetite. My name is Brad Kramer. I am joined by my peppy co-host, Christine Struble. Hey, Christine. Hi, Brad. I didn't know I was peppy today, but I, I'll take that adjective. Yeah, and, and we last time we, we were together, we talked about doing a after-hours taping of the show, which this is not, so that we could hear Christine once she has... Uh, had a few drinks, so we still need to do that. But no, we're, we're going with Peppy today. I couldn't decide whether it was to go with Perky or Peppy, but we're going with Peppy. Um, and um, on this episode, I should mention, so that uh, people have a reason to stay tuned other than me just making fun of your drinking, is we have a interview that I did with the star of HGTV's Love It or List It, uh, Hillary Farr. Um, may have been my favorite interview yet. And we'll talk about that in a bit. And then you did two fabulous interviews. Um, one with Wolfgang Puck and one with David Gelb. And we'll talk about those in a bit too. But before we get to those interviews and talk about those, um, you in your constant search for culinary pleasure and, um, satisfaction, I guess, he recently had the occasion of going to Walt Disney World and to Epcot for the Food and Wine Festival. And so I wanted to ask about that and see what you tasted, what you ate, what you drank, obviously, um, and your thoughts on uh, on that experience, on, on your latest culinary... Uh, culinary... Adventure. Adventure. Yeah, I was trying to think of something like cuter, but I, 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 yeah, on your, on your latest culinary journey. Well, uh, so Epcot food and wine started really early this year. Uh, normally it starts in end of August, beginning of September, but this time they started it in the middle of July, right? When basically when they got done with the flower and garden festival. So the setup this year is a little different. Um, half of the booths are open now. Um, and then there's a whole nother group that are going to be opening October 1st, which also happens to be the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney world. So it's a big celebration here in Florida. Um, but for the opening, they had some, um, really unique items, uh, this year. And one of the big parts of the festival is that almost half of the food and beverages that they're offering this year are all new. So it gives people a really good opportunity to um, 
go on what they, what Epcot is calling Epic, uh, Epicuriosity. So, you know, combine Epicurean and curiosity and you have a new word. Um, some of the highlights, uh, there was one that, uh, that's a porchetta and they serve that with a bourbon Bloody Mary, which a spicy bourbon Bloody Mary. So it was pork on pork on pork because it had bacon in the Bloody Mary and then the porchetta and um, lots of seasonings. So that's a really tasty meal. It's really kind of substantial. Um, what, what time of day did you consume that one? Because um, I think if if I recall... You were there before opening, ready to like the storming, storming the gates of the Bastille. Well, since it was a special media event, we were there a, a little early in the morning. But you know, you eat bacon at breakfast, so you have porchetta at breakfast, and Bloody Marys are brunch cocktails, so it was fine. Okay, just checking. And uh, the rest of the day, um, the. One of the new booths, um, new marketplaces that they have at Epcot is a noodle bar. And they have a really good spicy pho, beef pho or tofu pho. And the big find with that one is that uh, the beer that they're pairing with that is from Playa Linda Brewery, which is a local Florida brewery. And it's the beer was made with green tea. So even if you aren't big into um, really spicy noodles, definitely go get the beer because it's quite different and really refreshing on a hot day. So I mentioned earlier that uh, the first interview on this episode is with Hillary Farr from HGTV. Um, And yes, we are a food podcast and somebody could be sitting and listening to this and saying, okay, why is he interviewing a designer on a design show on a design network? Well, it occurred to me that the everybody for time in memoriam has referred to the kitchen as the heart of the home. And what is the reason for being in the kitchen is to eat and consume and to cook and to talk and to hang out. So I thought it would only be natural to have a conversation with her, with Hillary, who is from all appearances, just absolutely brilliant as a designer. And like, if I could pick somebody off of TV to design my house, my kitchen, by far, as many talented people as we see, by far, Hillary would be my first choice and there wouldn't even be a close second. Just personal opinion. So, um, in having said that, and before we get to that interview, I'm curious whether you are a consumer of design shows as well with all the free time I know you have in your schedule, what your thoughts are on kitchen, kitchen design. Do you have a favorite element in your own kitchen? I know we've talked about your, your smoker out back and that doesn't count. Um, before we talk kitchens with Hillary, I just wanted to hear what your thoughts were on personal um, kitchens and what you find appealing in kitchens or your dream kitchen, that kind of thing. I would like to completely redesign my kitchen. I hate my kitchen. Uh, It's not functional. Like it needs an island. It needs a bigger stove. I wish I had a double oven. My house now versus the house, my other house, um, very, very different. 
And I wish I had my kitchen back from my previous house in Illinois. It had a huge island, probably the size of a dining room table, Hmm. lots of cabinet space and a double oven and a gas stove and everything you could think of nice and open, everything else. For whatever reason, this house in Florida just has a very poorly designed kitchen. Now, I don't know who would redesign my kitchen. I, I've i watched many uh, home decorating improvement, HGTV, all of those type of shows. And, and I have grand ideas, but unfortunately, my wallet does not support those grand ideas of what I would like. So for those of you listening who are not regular viewers of HGTV or unfamiliar with uh, Love It or List It, aside from the fact that I wholeheartedly recommend you watch the show, um, it's a design show, yes, but because of Hilary Farr and her co-host David Visentine, who have phenomenal chemistry and you cannot fake the kind of chemistry that they have, it is very natural. It is very, very appealing. Um, and we'll give you a taste of that in a moment too, before we get into the interview with Hillary. Um, Love It or List It is just great television. And in a time when there's so many choices, um, if you, and it's easy, that, easy to think that it could have fallen through the cracks for you. If you have not watched Love It or List It, um, give it a shot. I think you'll enjoy it. So um, here's a little bit of uh, getting to know Hillary and her co-star David Visentine, and you'll you'll pick up on the chemistry between the two of them, and then my conversation with Hillary Farr. I love you. Oh no, you don't. Oh, I do. I appreciate you. How's that? I'm not ready to say I love you yet. I love you in spite of not appreciating you. Oh. <laughs> what I love is meeting family. Sometimes they think we're married, yeah. but you can tell. Obviously, clearly, no. That would never work. No. The only reason our relationship actually can exist this long is the breaks, because otherwise we'd kill each other. Actually, he makes me laugh, and often intentionally. So I usually don't start my interviews with controversial questions, but I'm going to get the controversial question out of the way first. Um, hopefully you can see tongue planted firmly in cheek. Um, in one of the episodes of Love It or List It during the opening shot when you and David are driving, you told him you don't like pizza. Ha! That's blasphemous. Please explain. I think it is such an overrated food. It's Basically, dough, obviously degrees of excellence in that, um, pastry, with a whole lot of whatever random stuff you had left in your fridge, as far as I'm concerned, goes on it. In terms of artistry and, you know, plating decorative attributes, zero as far as I'm concerned. It only works for me if I'm sloshing it back with a huge glass of wine. Um, That's it. Don't like it at all. You're in a very select group, I would venture to say. Uh, apparently, yes. And I'll tell you something. I was absolutely famished yesterday and I had literally nothing in my fridge uh, except a frozen pizza. And I actually stooped to a frozen pizza. You can't get much lower. And the first three bites were delicious. And then it was absolutely, I'd rather starve. Nope. There you go. Okay. I had to get, I had to ask that out, get that out of the way. Um, before we talk about um, your approach to designing Drop Dead Gorgeous Kitchens, I want to learn a little bit more about you and take a peek inside your own kitchen. And I'm curious, what food items do you always have to have in your fridge and or pantry? 
Oh my gosh. Well, I will tell you that I am working. It's been a process for probably the last seven years of becoming increasingly like so many people, uh, vegetarian and moving on from there. I'm on my way to vegan. However, I know that I will never, ever, ever be able to give up eggs. Eggs are my life. Um, so I'm doing, getting the ethically, fabulously created happy hen eggs. Um, eggs have to be in there. Uh, oat milk has to be in there. I have to have every conceivable kind of thing that could go into a smoothie and or an amazing salad. Um, there has to be also excellent wine in there. And um, what else? Let me think. What is in my fridge? What has to be in my fridge? Yeah, that's the, that's basically it. You know, smoothies are my breakfast and uh, salads and eggs get me through the day and uh, wine gets me through pretty much everything else. So to follow up on that, um, David, from what I understand, turned you on to smoothies. And... You know what? Homemade smoothies. Okay, so homemade smoothies. So do you have a, a go-to smoothie combination recipe, even that whether you get it out or whether you do it at home, that is your preferred smoothie du jour? Okay, so here's the thing with smoothies. There are the smoothies that are really good for you and a little bit, you know, fat, very green and good for you. And then there are the ones that are just actually like a meal in a smoothie. Two just completely different things. So the good, the goody goody two shoes one is the one with the bunches of kale and the baby, uh, uh, whatever, maybe a spinach and probably a little bit of um, chia and matcha and tatcha and all of those good for you things. And you can just about get those down if you can taste it with a good cup of black coffee. And then there are the really yummy ones that have banana and avocado and apples and pineapple and all that other great stuff in them. So they're not um, the same. So the indulgent ones, I always have a few of those in my fridge too, by the way, because I always make enough that there's a bit left over. Yeah. So there is some distinction between the two. A hundred percent. Well, like everything in life, you know, yeah, there's the stuff that, you know, you have to probably kind of hold your nose and do it. And the others there where it's just fabulous. So, yes. So you also referenced wine. Is wine. there, is there a Hillary Farr favorite or are you across the board? Do you mean a favorite in terms of a brand or uh, just. Or, you know, I, ha- I love my red wine. I love my white wine. I love my rosé. You know, here's the thing. I left England um, when I was in my 20s. And so I had not, you know, I hadn't had time to really develop any sort of a palate. I knocked back anything that was liquid, you know, I mean, pretty much. Um, so I then spent the really a long, long time of my adult life, almost 12 years in California. So I cut my teeth in terms of wine on the West Coast and I still, I'm sorry, but I just still love um, Californian Chardonnay. I don't love them too sweet. I do love the oaky and I love them a bit fruity. Um, So I'm a white winer, um, but I also love many other wonderful white wines as well. But I am also a red winer. So I'm pretty much, um, and that's pretty typical. Nothing extraordinary. I love a Rioja. I love a Merlot, love a Cab. depends. Um, 
And I love a good gin and tonic. Being from London and now living in Toronto and Raleigh, are there foods that are unavailable in one of those locations that you crave when you're in the other ones? So like if you're in Raleigh, do you crave Tim Hortons? When you're in London, do you crave something from the Carolinas that you might not? You have very distinct regional roots. And I'm just curious if they're come, like, okay, you're sitting in Raleigh and you would kill for a great poutine that you would get in Toronto. I'm just, I'm curious if that ever comes into play. So here, here's what I'll say about that. Less and less, and here's the only reason why, which is a sad thing, that there has become a standardization where you can almost get anything that you want anywhere that you go. That wonderful thing of going to a new country and experiencing something completely different and that thing where you also bring that home with you and then try and repeat it where you are and for the water being different or whatever it is, it never tastes the same. That's gone to so, in such a great way. I mean, in terms of um, English food, I do love summer desserts. I, I, I love what is done over there with sorbets and, and incredible fruit tarts. And I mean, just wonderful, wonderful English desserts that do only taste the way they do when you're in London. There's just right. no way you can replicate it. Um, Raleigh has one of the most incredible food scenes of anywhere. A lot of it is farm to table. Um, what can I get there that I can't get anywhere else? Almost nothing. Because if I want great Italian food, it's there. If I want great Indian food, they have it there. I don't think I can come up with one thing that they have that I can't get somewhere else. But I did discover a very good, um, drink there oh. which is it's called krupnika and it is um there's a polish version of it it's um it's a wonderful honeyed liquor you almost go into insulin shock and yet there's it's <laughs> warm when it goes down it's delicious so I, I can't get that anywhere except um raleigh and in toronto poutine i'm new um gosh tim horton's Coffee is pretty good, I have to say. It is. And because I've seen you with plenty of Starbucks cup in your hand. You, you know why? Because I'm in Raleigh most of the time. Right. Um, but is Tim Horton's coffee good enough to pine for? Not really. No. Okay. No, I can't think of anything here. I'm sorry to say. Is that awful? Great question. Can't think of it. If I think of something, I'll send a follow-up. Okay, perfect. I'd love that. Um, two more food questions before I get to kitchens, and I hope you don't mind the food questions. Um, what is your go-to cheat food? Cheat? When, cheat, uh, C-H-E-A-T. Something oh, that you... Cheat my being bad foods. When you're being bad or something you know you shouldn't eat or when nobody's looking. Oh, my God. Okay, so I did just think of something here um, that ties into that, and it's not exactly a Canadian food, but it is a Polish, my um, partner is Polish. Um, it is a Polish dessert that I'm sure you can get in Poland, but anyway, I get it here in Toronto. <laughs> and it is some strange um, twist on cheesecake that then has this sort of a fruit jello thing on the top. Okay. And and in really probably just a crushed up cookie base. I don't even know. It is absolutely not an ounce of anything good in it except the occasional strawberry you'll stumble on within the jello. It is so good. 
Um, I'm very bad with cakes. That's my weak spot. Okay. And Cameron will tell you, I've often said, oh my God, please go get me a, a croissant. I need a croissant. Um, that's my weakness. Yeah. So, so I know you have a favorite scone place in Toronto. Do you have somewhere in Raleigh where you can get a great croissant? Yes, there's a place called La Farm. It's in um, Cary. Am I right, Cameron? I think it's Cary. Um, absolutely spectacular, lovely and wonderful, crunchy, not as great as Paris, um, but very nice, very good. And then the last food question, which especially in times of COVID, it may come off as a little morbid, but it's always a fun question. What is your final meal? Oh, it's not morbid at all. I think that's brilliant. Now, you see, because I'm so boring and almost vegan now, it's pretty, pretty sad. Um, so my favorite meal would be absolutely spectacularly cooked scallops, which I think should probably have some extraordinary, oh, maybe some, um, oh yeah, maybe some angel hair pasta in squid ink. Mm. And everything else that would be delicious with that, and a very large bottle of what would I like to go with that? <laughs> I probably would just go with my good old Chardonnay, a really great, excellent, fabulous, aged, amazing Chardonnay. Um, and of course, we would start off with a magnificent um, martini, okay, gin, dry <laughs> olives. And we would end with something incredibly indulgent. Maybe then I would go back to my English roots and I'd have an apple crumble with custard. Okay. That's what I would have. Perfect. And then I would say fairly well. <laughs> Happily. With, with a giant shit-eating grin pasted on your face. <laughs> exactly. Pardon, pardon my... everywhere on my face, yes. <laughs> um, getting to the, the design part of your life. Yeah. When you design a kitchen for love it or leave it, does love it or list it. Love it or list it. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, I, and I've only watched 50 episodes in the last five days. So it's a total slip of the tongue. Um, does creating it for visual medium mean that you prioritize, prioritize form over function for the show? Uh, you know, that's a very good question. Um, and the answer is no. Um, because I can't separate the two. My head is incapable of separating the two. I was always known as the sort of Mary Poppins of design. I'm so practical. You can't do this because it's just wrong. Right. Um, um, so then how do we make that look as spectacular as we can? So the answer is no, I do not. I always... Think of, uh, I have an image because as I said, I'm visual of how I want this kitchen to look in the space. And then within that, it has to work as a, as a functional kitchen to satisfy me. Um, having said that, I will very often uh, create a kitchen design where I know that if we're walking in from here, whether it's the homeowners are and therefore we are and therefore the camera is and therefore the audiences right and the back wall is the working wall that's uh, going to be a backsplash that is going to take um your breath away i hope right. so that's the sort of thing that i would bring into design that is nothing to do with function but everything to do with the impact on screen yeah so the visual does come into play so oh, 
as a designer of fabrics, furniture, and other things, you're able to see and predict trends, colors, that kind of thing. Are there trends in kitchen design that you see becoming more prominent in the next few years? I do. And um, I'll tell you that when I see these trends, I'm very often, and this isn't to say anything that I'm magnificent, but I'm very often ahead of the curve. And whatever I say, it may t- it's going to take at least five years for everyone to catch up to because, <laughs> because it's the majority of people are not going to buy it until the trend has become the norm. So if you want to be in the thin air group that is like catching the wave, that's one thing. Most people want to just, it's already crashed to the ground and then they'll come in. But I do think that, um, thank God, Gray um, has probably not died, but people have recognized a certain flatness and blandness. And I think that um, the pandemic and spending time inside and our lives becoming so different with many silver linings as well along the way. I see color coming back. Um, I don't see bold color. I mean, that's a very European thing that's been going on for a long time. And we've tried and it has never been embraced in North America, certainly not in a sophisticated environment. But I do think there are ways to bring color in. And in fact, I am bringing color into my own house that I'm renovating in Raleigh, which is going to be an episode of Love It or Listed, a special that they're doing. And I am bringing, but a very subtle, subtle color, a very deep, dark, almost a masculine color Hmm. that I am bringing into an otherwise very white um, kitchen. So it's actually going to make its big statement. So I think color's coming in. I think that um, having these massive um, stoves um, that take up so much space, I have one myself. I think that we're moving away from that more to a cooktop and wall ovens to almost more traditional, and yet they're not necessarily. I think people are cooking differently. I think speed ovens are coming in right. more that replacing microwaves as they should in so for so many reasons. So that changes the design so that you would have a wall where you can put your wall ovens in. It's very slick and sleek, um, flush with all of your cabinetry pantry. So that becomes a very elegant way of getting function as opposed to having this huge thing right in the middle of your, whatever part of your kitchen it is. I think hood fans, we don't need to ever see those ever again. They (laughs) have to be there, but let's make them disappear. Not a design element. I think we're looking for, a place that is clearly functional and is absolutely has to, I'm looking at your lovely kitchen. It has to absolutely seamlessly flow in with whatever else it's open to because open concepts, not going away. Right. And so that's changing the way uh, we're designing. I think, I think the trend is going to be color, slickness, scale down appliances, scale down, um, the hood fan, all of those elements that were stainless steel in your face, they've got to disappear and they're going to disappear. For obvious reasons, you don't spot, spotlight, speaking of appliances, you don't spotlight specific brands of appliances when you're doing a reveal on the show. I'm curious, in this arena, I think it's okay to ask whether your answer or not is another thing. Is there an appliance brand or two that you prefer to use when your budget allows on Love It or List It? Yeah, who knows? Somebody may hear this and you may get an endorsement deal out of it. <laughs> well, I will tell you this. Um, I 
I'll just roll back. Sub-Zero, when Sub-Zero first came into our lives, it was the very first with a double compressor. Um, there were a lot of functional reasons why it was something we went, oh, wow, it is worth that incredible money that I was going to put into a fund for my son's education. It's going into a fridge instead. Um, but everyone else has caught up with that now. There's, you know, int- I mean, I think Sub-Zero is still spectacular. If there was one thing I would spend money on in a fridge, uh, in a kitchen, it would be a Sub-Zero fridge. I will also say that I'm a big fan of Thermador. And I've actually done my whole house in Raleigh, in Thermador. Okay. I was really impressed with... Um, the attention to detail in terms of design, the attention to detail in terms of function. Um, They've come a very, very long way. They were always great. I think they're really excellent right now. They really are. They've got a fridge coming out that I'm using, which is stainless steel inside and out. Oh, wow. And the the storage solutions within it, so you can still have a fully integrated fridge, are spectacular. So... That's one that we've used on the show. I personally really, really like for so many reasons. And yes, I stand by Sub-Zero fridges for sure. Yeah. Okay, I'll have to tag them when I tweet the episode. If you design a kitchen for Love It or List It in Toronto and one in Raleigh at the same time, do you approach them the same way or are there regional design differences between the, it's, it's not only two different cities, it's two different countries. Would you approach them differently because of where they're located? Well, yes, but for a variety of reasons that are to do with just function. So first of all, the homes that we do in, uh, we're in Toronto mostly, occasionally we're going outside of Toronto. They will be smaller just by default. Right. So it's much more of a challenge in terms of creating a functional kitchen in a very small space. Um, The other difference, of course, is climate. So you are indoors for a very long time (laughs) in Toronto. So you need to focus on um, a really comfortable kitchen. You're not going to just, it's not a show-off kitchen generally, that we're doing is a kitchen that is going to be functional and people are going to crowd into because you have to, because you can't go out. It's freezing bloody cold. Um, In Raleigh, I have a different uh, aesthetic because of space, different climate. Um, The light is different. Um, It changes everything. But Canadians, I, in Toronto, where the, where where we land, which is not up in the thin air um, group, I don't think people go out to eat as families as often as I've noticed that they do in Raleigh, for example. Okay. So the kitchen is truly a really important room, whether you are a couple or whether you're a family. So it's comfort. And, and, and that, so that circles day. back to the function over form that we talked um, about earlier. Well, no, I do maintain the form. There's nothing to that backsplash. No, no, no. Um, I, yeah. All I'm saying is it becomes, it, it's, it's, it's more a kitchen that will be about solving a space issue and solving it being a gathering point and a truly functional part of your home. Um, in Raleigh, it's all of that, but it's also a huge entertaining area. It's, right. um, it's just slightly different. It is different. Okay. Um, so you have a new show coming up on HGTV later this year called Tough Love. 
Can you tell us a little bit about why diehard fans of Love It or List It are going to love it? Well, I hope they're going to love it. Well, let's start with this. It's just me and no David. Uh, So, no. For for people listening to this, there was a huge smile that came onto Hillary's face when she said that. (laughs) (laughs) uh, No, I would really only because it was such a joke. I adore him. You know that. Really deep down. Deep, deep, deep down. I really do. Um, uh, The concept of tough love is that the design follows a true need that has taken and is taking an emotional toll on the homeowner. And so the solutions are more than just doing a great looking kitchen. It's more than that because it's solving a life that is in crisis for some reason that I can't solve it all, but within the four walls, that's where I can change the way um, a life is functioning and make it better. Uh, We have one episode where um, a young family's, the the wife's mother has had to move in. And they, both of them have said to me, you know, two grown women should never be under the same roof. (laughs) And so we've solved that issue. Um, So there, there are, that's the difference. Um, there's no competitiveness. Obviously, that element is gone. And there's a little more time to really slow it down and deal with the story and the, and the elements that will lead to the, um, the reveal of how that was solved within the design world. So it's different. It's a different pace. And they'll see parts of me they never saw before. And I'll give you one little tease. Hmm. I went to a place and... It was axe throwing. Ah, ah, and which is I probably good. That it's probably good that David wasn't with you. Uh, <laughs> good or <point>. Eric. <laughs> Turned out that I'm pretty. I'm pretty okay at axe throwing. Who knew? So oh, no. it's fun. It's there's. Fun. You're going to learn more about me than you've ever had time to learn if you want to, and if not, <laughs> then it's not going to work very well. Casual Hillary Farr fans might not know that you were once an actress and that you played Betty Monroe Hapshat in Rocky Horror Picture Show. That begs the question, can you do the time warp? <laughs> no. Can you? No, no I, uh, two left feet. I, uh, no. No, I can't, is the answer. I never even thought that I should try. I was Betty Monroe. I was in a wedding dress. Um, such a good question. Now I feel like that's a terrible, terrible deficit in my life. I'm going to go and learn it. See, it's funny because I sit there and I think, okay, at some point since shooting that film, you must have popped the song on or put it on uh, your iPad or your computer. And because they they do give the steps in the video with it too, you know, step to the left, step to the right. And I almost was 100% convinced that you were going to tell me, of course I can do it. Oh, I should have said that, but it would have been a lie. Uh, Yeah, no. And I'll tell you something else. I've also never, ever um, seen Rocky Horror Show from beginning to end, A, and I've never, ever gone to one of the theaters where everyone dresses up. So there you are. So it it was a role and that was it. You know what? I was, I think I was almost still at, still at school when that happened. And it only happened 
that I lived downstairs from, and now I'm going to embarrass myself. Oh my God, the actor who was uh, Frankenstein. What was oh, Tim Curry. Tim. So Tim lived upstairs from where my family lived in Holland Park in London. And um, they, uh, he, he shared a space with a brilliant man called Peter Straker. And, and so we were up and down all the time and I was at theater school and, um, and the piano was there and everybody was playing. I mean, every Christopher, I mean, everybody was there. It was a phenomenal, wonderful, like a salon. And, um, the writers, they came over, they hung out there, you know, Rocky Horror Show. And they said, Hey, we'd love to work. Why don't you just come over? We're going to figure something out. Oh, you could be Betty Monroe. That was how it happened. I have no memory of being paid for it. I have oh. no memory of anything else. Zero expectations. And suddenly it's turned into, of course, this fantastic, iconic film. So that's why I have it's not been a huge part of my life. Um, because that was a thousand years ago and I, I had no expectations. Thank you so much for taking the time. I hope we can do it again sometime. Likewise, my pleasure. It's just a jump to the left. Put your hands on your hips. So, Christine, the big buzz in the food world these days, at least from where I sit, is the new Anthony Bourdain documentary, Roadrunner, um, which I have not seen yet. I don't know if you have. But on the topic of food documentaries that, in in my opinion, and I believe yours too, I think people should be aware of and, and seek out, is the new documentary on... Disney Plus called Wolfgang that David Gelb um, produced and directed. And you recently spoke to both Wolfgang Puck and David Gelb about that production. Um, since the Bourdain documentary is a conversation for another day, talk to me a little bit about your feelings about the documentary Wolfgang in general. Well, the I think the biggest takeaway before delving into chef puck himself is the how the director attacked the film or how he portrayed the film so if you're not familiar with david gelb he is the mastermind behind chef's table um and several other shows that have been on uh netflix and his goal when he sits down to do these profiles is he takes the approach of that the chef is almost like a superhero, that there's this arc to their story, that sometimes there are flaws, but there's a great triumph. And then we kind of leave with this concept of, you know, looking forward, looking positive ahead. So you get this nice little um, 
journey as you go through the story. And yes, food is part of it because we all want to see these amazing plates and, and understand the, the, the end product of what these people do. But it really comes down to the person itself and how that person is represented in what the, in the food that they prepare for others. Now in the Wolfgang, um, documentary, there is a lot about he, uh, him as a man, because in many ways that did, does influence everything that he shows in his restaurants. And granted, there are aspects to the film about you know, what is California cuisine, the importance of the open kitchen, all the things that we kind of take for granted right now that happened because of Puck coming through at that particular time in Southern California. But the things that really melded him as a man, you know, go back to his childhood and watching his mother, you know, cook in a hotel and trying to get away from his stepfather and never wanting to give up making sure that he kept moving forward because he had this drive. He had this insatiable appetite to succeed that he was going to do whatever he could to fulfill his dream. And if you look at that, you know, him at the age of 14 and that desire and where he is now in his seventies that's still there. I mean, many people will joke, well, why isn't he sitting at home just enjoying life? Well, that drive never has never gone away. And if you look at some of his contemporaries that kind of came up at the same time, whether it's, you know, Jonathan Waxman or Nancy Silverton or the late Mark Peel, a lot of those people had have this deep connection to food and what it can be. And whether you call it an obsession or whether you call it um, a desire or just a love for what you do, that sentiment can show other people who maybe aren't into food as much as you and I, that, you know, when you find that passion, let it drive you to the success that it can be. So again, Disney Plus is where you can find Wolfgang. David Gelb's new documentary. Um, the documentary itself is wonderful. And the interview that Christine did with Wolfgang Puck is equally wonderful and just open and insightful. And it just seems like uh, an authentic guy. So let's take a listen. Hello, Chef. Pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you. Good to chat with you. So after watching the movie, which I found absolutely delightful, I, I was left with a couple thoughts. And one was focusing on your resilience and also that you have a vision and you uh, for food and what food could be. And you never kind of strayed away from that. Do you think that those characteristics are something that young chefs can learn from and appreciate um, your path? You know, it really, it's an interesting thing because, you know, the producer and the, the director of the movie is David Gell, who loves food, but also chefs. So you really could feel that connection in the movie, how he told the story about my life. And I think how he made people 
see a different story of myself, something we never told to anybody, something I didn't really want to talk about. So I think David really did an amazing job of bringing that together and telling a story. And I think telling the story to young people, and that's why Disney Plus is really great because they have a lot of young people watching it, I think is to show young people that adversity and endurance are two of the most important parts of uh, success. And if you're a basketball player or if you're a cook, there's no difference. And, and it appears that throughout your journey, you've had you know certain uh, members of the culinary community that kind of mentored you in a way. Do you think that young chefs today need some um, other chefs to kind of mentor them on their path? Well, I really, it is important that you find your mentor who is passionate and who can pass on this passion to you because you might not have it at the beginning, but when you see something, you get really excited. And I said, I want to do that. I I love that. And I will spend hours doing it. And I have spent hours perfecting my game. You know, that's basically what it is. But I think a mentor was really important to me because when I was at Bomanier, I think that was probably my most important part of my young life before I came to America because really I found my mentor and my passion with Raymond Tullier because he was so passionate about the ingredients, about how to cook it and how to do it. Well, and and today, if we look at food, the ingredients are, you know, very important on our dish and, and, and we think about what's on the plate more often. Do you... Why do you think it's now even more in vogue to kind of know where your ingredients come from and, and how they're prepared? Well, I will tell you, when I started Spargo, there was no farmer's market, you know. You couldn't go to the farmer's market and talk to a farmer. There was one farmer I drove two and a half hours south to Rancho Santa Fe and the Gino family who have this amazing farm there where they grow all kinds of stuff from strawberries to white corn to melon to herbs to salad, uh, you name it, you know, whatever you could cook with the best green beans or peas, but for a different amount of time, you know, you didn't get green beans uh, or peas all year round, or you didn't get white corn all year round, there was a season, and I really loved it, but because it reminded me of Austria. My mother had a big vegetable garden, so when she made vegetable soup, she went into the garden, took a, a, a leek and maybe some kohlrabi and uh, maybe some peas and the cauliflower, whatever was there, and then she made a soup, and we all said, wow, it tastes soup, so good. And I remember one time I took uh, David Robbins and Lee, and I don't know who else came with me to Austria, and my mother cooked for us, and she made this vegetable soup because I told her, and he said, oh, my God, I never tasted vegetable soup like that. It was so good. Well, and and you've exposed a lot of people to what flavor really can be in, in in a different way by focusing on the ingredients. Do you think that food is continuing going to push forward with that idea of focusing on seasonality and um, it be staying true to what um, fresh local ingredients can be? Well, I think now you have obviously almost to overdo it. Some people, you know, this farm to table, everybody says, oh, it's farm to table, it's farm to table, it's farm to table. You know what? I grew up uh, uh, 
out of necessity it was found to table because to me as a kid i still remember when i opened the first can of pineapple and i tasted it and i said oh my god this is so amazing you know because it was sweet and that this and that and we didn't have it you know we had the apples we had pears i went in the forest picked the wild strawberries or raspberries or blueberries you know we had all that but i wanted to have something i don't have i remember my mother used or grandmother used to make sweaters for us to go skiing or socks or gloves all I want is, is a store board thing, you know. So as a kid, I wanted to have what, uh, what I couldn't get, you know. So it was interesting. But with cooking, there was certainly no no things buying, you know. There was no takeout food or there was no fast food. So everybody went home for lunch. Like all the stores in the little town next to us, they closed for two hours or whatever, from 12.30 to 2.30. And people went home and had lunch with their family. So that was a normal way of life because you couldn't go to a sandwich shop and get a sandwich at that time. So life has changed. People are open 24-7 basically with stores. So uh, people feed themselves. They don't go together and have a meal together. You know, it's so different now. I miss it. And I think it's a great thing with Italian families, like they get together on Sunday for lunch and the lunch lasts four or five hours. Or Jewish families when they have Shabbat and they get all together, get dressed up and they sit around the table and enjoy food. Well, and and a lot of people go to your restaurants, not just in addition that it's your restaurant because we want a connection to you, but we also want a connection to the overall experience. And and you started that with the open kitchen and making food um, more than just the, the item on the plate. Do you think that now people are drawn to not only gathering the family together as a table, but the overall experience of enjoying a meal with someone else? You know, I tell everybody in the restaurant is at the end, how do we make the customer feel is the most important part. If you feel good, you know, the food was good, the service was friendly, it makes you feel good. You don't mind to pay for it. But if at the end you don't feel good about it, the experience, so it is an experience, then you say, well, I don't know if I'm going to come back here. So I think it's really how we make people feel, how great of an experience can be arranged or make it for them. And that's really what we want. And when I look at our restaurants, they are open for 40 years, like Spago, Chinois, 38 years. Longevity is really the most important thing. You know, these days, restaurants open and close all the time, but longevity is really the best thing and what I'm the most proud of. And do you think that with, um, as the evolution of the celebrity chef kind of continues within the food world. Do you think that that scenario will drive people to come back to restaurants as the world kind of opens back up that we want to have this connection with someone like yourself that we see on TV? I think people really love that because they get excited when they see somebody on TV. I don't know what really difference it really makes because at the restaurant, uh, maybe they make them feel even better because they saw me on TV or some other chefs. But at the end of the day, is what is in your plate, how the waiters treat you and how you feel there. Sure, if I go to a restaurant, I cannot be in every restaurant at the same time. If I go to the restaurant and then... Uh, I take a picture.
picture with people, it makes them feel good. It doesn't take a lot of time for me and people feel happier almost. If I would say, I stay in the kitchen and cook for you, or I take a picture with you, I think nine out of 10, they would say, okay, let's take the picture. So now that we uh, have covered the subject of the documentary Wolfgang, um, you also interviewed David Gelb, who's the producer and director. I should mention, um, not to plug a separate product, uh, project of his, but I, I'm compelled to. David Gelb also did a documentary, I want to say probably 10 years ago, called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And it originally aired on Netflix, I believe. And um, if I'm not mistaken, you can now find it on like Hulu and Amazon Prime. And it's basically a documentary about um, an 85-year-old gentleman named Jiro Ono, um, who a lot of people say is the premier sushi chef in the world. And his little outpost in, in for lack of a better word, the, the depths of the subway system in Japan. And as good as this documentary is that David Gelb um, produced about Wolfgang Puck, Jiro Dreams of Sushi is uh, just as good. So if you are a foodie and you love consuming food focused documentaries, uh, you should look up Jiro Dreams of Sushi and take a look at that too. Did you see that one? Uh, many, many years ago. Uh, so it's, it's not super fresh in my mind, but um, I know that David did talk about that when we chatted because it, when he told that story, it gave people a glimpse into a spot where the majority of us will never, ever be able to have a seat at that restaurant. But it's not just about the food. It's about, you know, I think he even says the one chef who took him how many times to master that perfect bite. And, and that's about the journey. And, and I think that's the most, one of the more important things that David does in his storytelling is, have people focus on the journey, not necessarily just the end product. Yeah, it's about the journey, not the destination with him. Exactly. And he maps that out and he, he goes into a great detail um, sharing with you um, his process and, and especially how he approached the, the Wolfgang documentary for Disney+. Plus. So let's take a listen. This is Christine's interview with David Gelb. I'm a little curious. Everyone knows the name Wolfgang Puck, even if you've maybe even never eaten at one of his restaurants. Why is now a really good time to tell his story? Well, you know, I think that it's it, a big part of it is that he's ready to tell his story. Um, you know, for the first time, we're, he's allowing us, uh, allowing any film crew in to really tell the story, the true story about his, um, his origins and, you know, the difficulty that he had as a kid coming from an abusive home, living in pure poverty and um, kind of following his, his dream. I mean, initially he was running away from something, you know, running away from his home where, where he was really unhappy. It turned into him chasing the thing that he loved. You know, he fell in love with cooking. And, you know, people are familiar with Wolfgang um, from his many television appearances um, from, you know, basically being this household name, this ubiquitous figure for, you know, 30, 40 years. Um, but we had the opportunity here for the first time to really tell uh, the true story of where he came from and showing the more vulnerable side, you know, kind of like in, in, in real intimate detail that, um, you know, we've never had the opportunity to do before. Well, do you think that now 
once people get an opportunity to appreciate his his story, that they will look at you know the food that he presents in a different way. Well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think that there is so much that people today who didn't necessarily live through his rise or did, or were too young um, kind of take for granted. Like some of the innovations that Wolfgang brings essentially are like, if you ever look at a menu and it's, it's, it's really him and, and, and Alice Waters, if you look at a menu, they describe the farm where the tomato comes from or where the beef comes from, really focusing on the product, identifying the great products in America and elevating them. And um, so that was a really big deal. The open kitchen is another example where, you know, it used to be that the restaurateur with the, the person who was in the front of the house was the one that everybody knew and the chef was tucked away in the kitchen. Well, Spago completely changed all of that with a big open kitchen, a wood uh, fire pizza oven and a wood fire grill right on the kitchen line, viewable to everybody. You know, the chef became the star, the kitchen became the stage and that's all thanks to Wolfgang. And I don't think know that people uh, necessarily know that today or give them that proper credit. Well, you know, when I think about now learning a little more about a background of his story, there is kind of almost like a hero message to it. And there is parts of that that you can even see like on his menus on um, even with some of his you know famous dishes. If you look at some of the pizzas, it's a humble dish, yet with some very elevated ingredients on them sometimes. So do you think that his background and his story, the, the, the dream that he was chasing kind of plays out on his menus from everything from those type of dishes to even highlighting the farmer and their humble beginnings? I mean, absolutely. Everything that you see in his restaurants today, you can, you can kind of triangulate to a certain extent where he picked that up on his journey. You know, for example, the fresh vegetables and um, highlighting the, the product itself um, comes from his time working at Beaumonnier, a three-star rest, restaurant in the south of France that had its own farms where they would bring this incredible produce into the kitchen. When he came to the United States, started working at the restaurant Ma Maison, he pursued that type of produce and brought that to the kitchen um, there as well. Um, you know, I think that there's, a, there, there, there's just so much... Um, you know, the, the, there are also great stories about how some of his signature dishes came to be. Like, for example, you know, he's serving a, a, a regular celebrity customer who uh, loves smoked salmon and brioche. He ran out of brioche, and that moment, it seemed like he was in, in for a disaster, but he pulled it off. You know, he, he basically found a way around it that ended up becoming one of his signature dishes, the smoked salmon pizza. Um in addition, you know, he also brings these elements of his childhood to his menu. And this is one of the great through lines of the movie is where he reconciles with his past in Austria by finally cooking Austrian food, where he'd really been focused on French, um, Asian foods, basically anything other than, you know, his home cuisine. Um, he brings the Wiener Schnitzel to the table. And Wiener Schnitzel was always known kind of, it, it was really kind of a peasant food um, where you would take one small piece of a luxury ingredient and they would pound it out flat, cover it, you know, uh, uh, bread it and everything. So that way you could feed a whole family with one tiny piece of veal. And that's like a treat for the whole family. And now he's taking that food and he's now serving it to the biggest celebrities in the world at his restaurant. And so he's kind of like taking that. That's almost like uh, emblematic of his journey. 
Well, and, and looking at some of the the visuals from, from the film itself, even uh, at moments like when he's in Austria, there are times where it's very uh, stark and poignant when he's reminiscing. And then you can almost see that subtle smile when he squeezes the lemon on the schnitzel. So how do you kind of, is that type of emotion what you're trying to capture when you're filming these um, moments with him? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my work is really based on like emotion and character. It's not like an instructional. My work has never been like instructional. It's never really been the food is an extension of the character, you know? And so we try to set up, we do our interviews. We talk for a long time. Um, you know, I'm very forthcoming about stories from my own life. So it's really an exchange and it gets our subject in this case, Wolfgang into a very comfortable place where he can really take himself. He transports himself there. And um, that's something that I've kind of worked at, you know, for many years to be able to try to get our interview subjects very comfortable so that they can really just like focus in on the feelings, the, the, the smells, the tastes, you know, the visuals, the things that they remember um, and then bring them to life through the camera. Well, a lot of times, you know, those of us who go to restaurants and specifically seek out certain chefs who have a, a very particular culinary point of view, we can sometimes either feel the emotion or feel the story on on a plate. So how does that translate to film? Because, you know, I, there's not smell of vision or anything like that. But how do you kind of get that feeling of being at the table with a chef? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's exactly what you just said. It's about the story and the context, I think. Um, because you're right. That's the thing that I can never deliver. I can never actually deliver what it tastes like to 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 the viewer. Especially, you know, when I was making Jiro Dreams of Sushi, this is a place where most people are never going to be able to um, experience that sushi specifically. So, you know, for example, and, and, I'll, and I'll use Jiro Dreams of Sushi as an example, you know, we have a story about the apprentice who makes the egg sushi, and he had to try to do it 200 times before they would actually serve it to a customer. And so then when you see this beautiful image of the egg sushi on the table, you have an idea of how much love and care and effort went into making that. And that resonates with the audience just as much as the actual physical smell or the taste of it. And so, you know, in applying that to Wolfgang, so many of his dishes have these spectacular kind of really interesting stories behind them. And, um, and that's what we do. We present the food, we shoot it as beautifully as we can, really emphasizing the elements of it that are the most interesting, the most visually alive, things that are going to inspire the appetite. But really, it's the story behind it that inspires you know, the passion. You feel the chef's passion because of the story, because of the content. Well, since you've been around many, you know, chefs through all of your different, um, you know, films and, and with Chef's Table, the, when it comes to, is there a specific like thread that kind of ties everyone together? I, I mean, I know every chef has a story, but is there something, are, you know, are they chasing something or are they looking for validation in their food? Have you found anything like that? Oh, sure. I mean, and, and, and our stories, there are all different types of stories, all different types of character. But the unifying thread, I think, is, um, I mean, I treat them like superheroes who have a special power, right? And, 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 and that's cooking. That's making something that inspires people. Um, and then we tell that origin story. You know, where did they start out? Where did they first discover their talent? And how did they learn to focus it? 
what were the mistakes that they made that then set them on the right path, you know? Um, but the unifying thing that really connects all of our chefs is passion. I mean, they care deeply, deeply about what they do to the point where they were able to take on one of the most difficult, most thankless jobs um, in the world, which is trying to be a cook. Um, and then also being a restaurateur at the same time, which is one of the riskiest things that you can do. And it's truly because they love what they're doing. And I think that's something that's a universal thing that inspires everybody. Somebody who's passionate about what they do, the story about how they made it, I think is something that always um, kind of sparks my views. Well, do you think that in today's restaurant world that that the nameless, faceless chef is never really going to happen anymore? In order to be successful, you have to be not necessarily a personality, but have that story to tell beyond just the food on your plate. Well, I think that to a certain extent, yes. I mean, you don't need to be a TV chef. You don't need to be on camera, but you have to give the diner the reason that they're the, the, the reason that they're going to this restaurant as opposed to the other tens of thousands of restaurants. I mean, some cities like New York City, there are so many restaurants. The competition is so fierce. People need a reason. They want a story behind why they're going to the restaurant that they're going to. And so um, that context has become absolutely essential. And sometimes, you know, it used to be about the restaurateur because it'd be like, oh, the service is so great here, and 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 um, they wouldn't even know the name of the chef. But now, you know, diners want to know that that chef has a certain pedigree, that they're telling a story, that they're doing. What are they doing that's interesting? What are they doing that the other restaurants aren't doing? Um, and that context, I think, is a big part of the decision-making process that diners make. And that's, that's what determines if a restaurant is successful and full or not. Do you think if, does it matter if that chef is actually, you know, on the line cooking the food or is just part of the experience because the chef puck said yesterday, you know, it's as important to him to go out and greet the diners in his restaurant as it is to be cooking on the line. Absolutely. But I think that a great restaurateur, if he's going to, or she is going to be able to leave the kitchen and do that is because they're a great teacher. Wolfgang has cooks who have been training with him, some of them for decades, and they kind of risen up in the ranks in the kitchen. Um, and so, you know, he's taught them his way of cooking. So they were able to take it on their own um, and then what's their own kind of creative wings and stuff. Um, you know, so he has young people who are t younger people who are inventing dishes in his kitchen that he proudly um, has served to his customers. Um, and, that, and that's one of the great things about Wolfgang and why he's able to have so many different restaurants that are operating on such a high level is because when he has this talent kind of nurturing in his kitchen, like he's like a teacher, then when someone is sort of ready to graduate, he can open another restaurant and then put, allow the staff to then kind of grow into that space as well. Um, and I think it's kind of an amazing thing. So if you're a great teacher and you really care and you're not going to open up faster than you're able to have talent for, you know, some people want to expand so quickly and then they're not able to staff the restaurants with the kind of talent or pedigree that really is emblematic of what the flagship has done. But Wolfgang's been able to do that because he's in the business for so long and because he's such a great teacher. And where do you think the restaurant trends are going? Do you foresee that it's going to be still driven by the chef and, and their voice, or is it going to be more of a, uh, a, a specific culinary drive, like a flavor drive? No, I mean, I think that people want to know that, you know, 
like as I mentioned before, you know, they want to know the story behind the restaurant that they're going to, to at least a certain extent, to know that, you know, this is a chef. You know, when you go to a pizza restaurant, you want to go to the pizza restaurant where the pizza chef has trained in Italy, has experienced all these different cuisines and stuff in Italy that he's then he or she is then bringing to their restaurant here. So just like a little bit of that context, I think, is incredibly important. I think a trend is really moving towards more vegetarian cuisine. And this is something that, um, you know, Wolfgang helped champion in California, Alice Waters as well, where we're putting um, a spotlight on the produce, on the farmer, um, you know, and, and saying that, you know, a vegetable is not just a side dish, like that can be a focus. And I think we're seeing that more and more and more. There we go. We now have painted a picture for all of you on the where's and what's and why's of uh, Wolfgang on Disney+. Plus. Um, both Christine and I highly recommend that you, you watch the documentary. And we are just not, it's not just a case of us promoting it because we did the interviews or because Christine did those interviews. Um, it's a great documentary. And if you are a fan of documentaries, food or otherwise, um, I think we both strongly recommend that uh, you give it a shot on Disney+. Plus. You, you, you would concur with that, would you not? Absolutely. I've watched it now several times because I keep going back trying to see if I can figure out other little hints and tricks from from watching him in his restaurant with his his, uh, different chefs. Hey, I want to thank everybody again for joining us this week on uh, Excuse Me, May I Have Some More? We are the Foodcast with an Insatiable Appetite. Um, Christine, it's been fun and I look forward to doing this again soon. Until next time, Brad. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. May I have some more? Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube.